Hope everybody's doing well. We're back in 1 Samuel. We got uh, a little bit sidelined last week, and we had a little sideline this morning with a technical issue, so we're going to pull up last week's um, PowerPoint and start from there, and that's all right. There's, there's some points we'll go to after this. And I'm sure we can remember because the rest, pretty much the balance of the book is Saul pursuing David in the wilderness and some of the issues, circumstances that take place with that. So we'll, we'll look over those. But this is the area where uh, David was hiding out. You see in Getty, there about midway down the Dead Sea on the west side. And this is the picture of the ascent. Of course, this is where we're headed down now. That's the Dead Sea out in the distance. We're headed down the ascent towards the Dead Sea. This is what you walk up. It's about a about a half hour hike up the hill. And if if I could put you there right now, uh, you'd be in 95 degree heat, and you'd be feeling it and walking uphill. We were concerned because you know I'm I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but Gary Shires, he's got a couple years on me. And he was determined he was going to do this, and he did. And we're, we're thinking, okay, you're going to have to carry one of us off of here. But, but we didn't. We made it all the way up, and we made it all the way back. And then, I don't have pictures of this because it was dark in there, but he went through Hezekiah's tunnel. I don't know if you're familiar with Hezekiah's tunnel. That's a little further on down the pike than First Samuel, but... Hezekiah dug a tunnel through sheer limestone about 1,500 yards long, and it was, its purpose was to be a waterway. And it's still a waterway. There's water flowing like crazy through there up to about your knees. And we got some little flashlights and walked through that thing. And it's, you know, it's about as wide as it needs to be if all you need is a channel for water. And so you're walking like this most of the time, and part of the time you're doing this because the ceiling is low. It's kind of claustrophobic, but at any rate, that's, that's some of the stuff we got to do, and we made it back alive, thank the good Lord. But this is where we were at the cave of Engedi. Which way do I go? Oh, that's the way. Here's another couple of views of the area. There's the, uh, another view of the ascent facing out towards the Dead Sea. You can see there is some stuff growing there, but not much because moisture is scant and scarce. I don't know exactly what it was like 3,000 years ago when David was there and Saul was there, but this is the way it is now, and I don't expect that it was a whole lot different. Not much has changed over there as far as these things go. There's the ibex. You remember talking about that last week? That's the animal that represents their national park system. And here's the, the going on the way up there. What kind of a tree is that? An acacia tree. A beautiful, lovely um, verdant knot. <laughs> they're just they're just desert trees, kind of like mesquite. But those were the trees that God said, "I want you to build things out of this." And so they built a lot of the things of the tabernacle out of acacia wood. Here's the cave as you uh, as you see it from where you're allowed to go. Some caves, this may be one of those. Just about has to be one of those. They have a small opening, but then they open up inside. This has to be the way this one is because David had 600 guys. 
and they were sitting in the recesses of the cave, according to the text of 1 Samuel. And while they were in there, Saul came into the front part of the cave to relieve himself, and that's where David approached and cut off part of his garment stealthily. And when Saul left, David came out to the mouth of the cave, held it up and said, Hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And this is supposed to be the place where that happened. I know it doesn't look like much, did it? If, if I didn't tell you that was a cave, you'd probably wonder, what in the world is he showing us a picture of? But that's what that's supposed to be. What's that? It would have to be pretty sharp. I'd say about a number 10 sharp. Yeah. And how stealthy would David have to be? Yeah. Well, Saul was probably wearing some lacy little frilly thing anyway. Doubt it. Yeah. But but that's that's what he did. That's what took place. If if you were looking just to the left of this shot right here, we're standing next to the cave. So what I just showed you of the cave is to the left of this shot here where the water's coming. It looks like it's just coming out of the rock, but there's actually a waterfall up above that, and it's just coming down, cascading down through the rocks. Of course, everywhere there's water, there are things growing. This was a group of kids. Uh, these are Israeli kids. I was glad to find out because I heard them coming from behind me, and they were loud and noisy and boisterous. Oh, great, it's a group of American kids over here. And, uh, and then they got up close. Oh, no, they're Israeli kids. Good. Uh, let them be loud and noisy and boisterous and not give a bad name to Americans any more than we have in some places. So they were just there visiting because they do the same thing kids in Oklahoma do. We take our kids to the historic sites and show them this is what happened here. And here's part of your heritage, and that's what they do. It's, it's pretty neat to see them gathering there like that. I just wonder what they believe about David and the son of David, really, is what I would be concerned with. I would have liked to talk to him about those things. Here's another picture. I threw this in here because you can see what it's like to some degree to ride on a camel, and that's the way they got around. A lot of folks did back then, and you can get another idea of the area. Uh, pretty, pretty sparse, pretty stark. You can't tell it from this picture, but we are riding on the edge of a precipice, uh, and if you would have fallen off to the right side of that camel, you would go down that hill for a long, long way. I don't know how far down it was, but it was a long way. Pretty, pretty interesting. All right. I don't have today's uh, slide, but here's what I wanted to do. You go ahead and shut that down, Hal. Thank you very much. Oh, you do have it? All right. Well, let's go down to that. Uh, where, is, where is that slide? Okay. We'll just review these real quick. Go ahead and. Pull all those up. Well, I can pull them up. You remember these? Direct and indirect attempts Saul made to kill David. So, who is Saul? God's anointed. That's the answer I wanted right there. He is God's anointed. And who is David? He is God's anointed to take the place of the first anointed. Because the first anointed wasn't doing it like he was supposed to. But God's anointed Saul is trying to kill God's anointed David. 
And then when David has opportunities to kill Saul, David says he will not because he will not lift his hand against God's anointed. That means there's something special about Saul in David's mind. And so he will not lift his hand against him even though he is his sworn enemy and he is trying every way possible to kill David. So let's think about this. According to the flesh, according to lineage, David is Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather. And we see the imagery in what's happening with David that happened with his great-great-grandson. I don't know how many greats are supposed to be in there. I didn't count those up, but you know what I'm talking about. Here is the one who is anointed of God who's being persecuted and for no good reason. He's hated, he's pursued, he's sought after, and yet God continues to watch over him and keep him safe until his time for ascending to the throne takes place. But Yes. No, uh, and I didn't look that up. And I, I don't know why, because I, I usually say, oh, I wonder what that means, because every name means something. Not in Getty, but Getty. And I, I always wondered what his name meant. <laughs> I, I think there's, a, there's an Italian rest place there, like a spa, and it's known as Spaghetti. So... <laughs> okay, I <sorry>. just had. <laughs> and somebody's probably looking that up on Google right now. Anybody finding that? Yes, Bob. The fountain. I. I of the fountain. Excellent. Oh, I say that's a great name for that place. What other? Definitions for places do you, can you remember? Bethel? Anybody remember the name, the meaning of the word Bethel, the name Bethel? House of God? How about Bethlehem? House of bread? And you, you start looking up the names of places and you'll find that they all have significance. A place that's mentioned several times in 1 Samuel is Gilgal. Anybody remember what Gilgal means from the book of Joshua? It means a rolling. That's where they remembered that God rolled away their sin. Start, start asking that question that Bud's asking. What does the name of that place mean? Because it, it, those are like, like things you can hang stuff on. And it, it really helps a lot. PJ? Oh, you Google it. Yeah, Ein means spring or a fountain, and Getty means goat or kid. It, therefore, it means kid spring or fountain of the kid. Okay, there you go. Good. You got pictures of goats drinking out of the fountain? All right. Snuck up on that goat. I bet David probably took those. No, maybe not. 
I got myself sidetracked. I don't know what I was talking about. <clears throat> so these two attempts, one was at the cave at En Gedi, and the second one in chapter 26 is right there in Saul's camp. Saul and his, his guys were asleep, and David came into the camp with his captain, and they were standing right over Saul. And he just took his spear and a bottle of water and headed out, and later on showed that spear and showed that bottle of water to Saul and said, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Okay, we're back to these. Did you say this is the new one? Okay. Yeah, well, I'll just jump past. Here we go. Take two of those. Out. All right, chapter 20. And we're just kind of zooming through these. Doesn't mean we can't stop and talk about something, but we'll we'll come back and talk about some of this uh, stuff in a, in a minute, I hope. Chapter 20, we're talking about David and Jonathan making a covenant, which is significant because who was Jonathan? That's Saul's son. And so his dad's trying to kill David, but Jonathan and, and uh, David, let me get my name straight here, Jonathan and David have this fast friendship. They, they really, it's like they meet each other, and I don't know if you've ever had this happen with you. You meet somebody, you just know immediately you're going to be great friends, and these guys were great friends. And so Jonathan was... Uh, making a covenant with David to keep him safe. And so we've got this going on in Saul's house, which is what you could expect. If, if you're not doing the right thing, expect that there will be people who will do the right thing, and they will be put in a position where they're going to have to betray you, although they're not betraying anything wrong. They're standing up for what's right, and that's what Jonathan was doing. So these two young men are covenanting together, for good, David goes to the priests at Nob. Uh, they help him. This is chapter 21. Verse 1, David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Why would Ahimelech be trembling? He knows Saul's after him. And he, okay, this is the guy Saul's If you come here, you're going to taint me, is what I think Ahimelech is thinking. It doesn't say that in the text, but why else would he be trembling? So David says to him this in verse 2, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. So, so Ahimelech helps David, but he doesn't know that Saul is actively pursuing him at this point. David is telling him that the king has sent him on an errand, which Saul has done in the past. Sent him out to, to fight his enemies. And so David takes the bread. What else does he take from Ahimelech? Look at verse 8. Goliath's sword. David said to Ahimelech, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, There's none like it. Give it to me. So David arose and fled that day from Saul. And where did he go? He went to Achish, who is 
king of Gath. Why is that strange? Philistine, but not only a Philistine, Gath, that's where Goliath was from. So he's going to the town, the hometown of the giant that he killed, and what's he taking with him? He's got his sword. So we might read this and think, David's crazy. Well, he's not crazy, but that's exactly how he acts when he gets there. Take a look at the text. This is so interesting. David took these words, or rather, uh, verse 11. The servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sting of this one as, as they danced, saying, Saul's slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now hold on here. Who's, who's telling that? These Philistines, servant of the king. They know about this song. This word has spread around. It's become famous that the girls are singing about David killing his ten thousands while they only attribute thousands to Saul. This has gotten, they must be reading the Philistine papers or something. I don't know what they're doing, but they're finding out and they know these things. So it says in verse 13, David disguised himself, disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. So he's acting crazy. So he can escape their wicked wiles. Achish says to his servants in verse 14, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? <laughs> I think this is funny. Do I not have enough madmen on hand that you've brought this one to me to act the madman in my presence? Send this one into my house. Or, Shall this one come into my house? So David escapes there. We get to verse 22, and that's where uh, Saul shows up and calls for the priests from Nob. And when they come before Saul, he has them slain because he believes they are uh, aiding and abetting his enemy. Now stop and think about that. You're the anointed of God to be king. But who are the priests? They are anointed of God to be priests. And Saul has determined he's going to lift his hand against these guys as well. How sick, how depraved, how far has he slid into this evil that he's willing to kill God's priests? He doesn't even ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? These men have betrayed me. In my mind, he would say, what, what should I do? Nothing like that. He just takes it upon himself to kill these guys. And so that's what he does. However, another question. Why would God allow that? I mean, if you're a priest, you're a faithful priest, and you've just helped David's or God's anointed David, and now you're... You're called on the carpet for doing that. Shouldn't God protect you and keep you safe? Okay. Bob? They won. 
They were faithful. He did protect them. Not on this route. Oh, I see. Where did they go? Right. He does protect us. He does look over us. It may not be comfortable while we're here, you know, because everybody has free choice. Not only us, but those who oppose us. And just, just as these priests, you know, had the, you know, their free choice, and they chose wisely, Saul also had free choice and chose wickedly, but he had more power, so, you know, it's, it's a fallen world. It's not fair. It's not going to be fair. It is a fallen world. That's the case. That's the situation. That's where we live. We live in a fallen world. We live in a war zone. All we can do is speculate. Exactly. But it, it does show that power corrupts. And in this world, there is not necessarily safety from corrupted power. I want to go back to what Bob pointed out. In the next world, standing in, up against corrupted power is one of the ways you, you guarantee your rightness with the Lord. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways, and that's what the priests did, and that's what we have to do. That's what saints have done through the ages, and who's our best example of that? Jesus himself. He stood up against the powers that be, and that's why he was crucified. When you read some of the things he said in chapter 23 of Matthew, you think, well, well, man, you're just making them angry. You're just stirring them up against you. Well, what was he doing? He was telling the truth. He was telling it like it needed to be told so people would be able to see and distinguish between what's right and what's wrong. And so he, woe to you, Pharisees. It's... We look at it from a worldly standpoint. And we say, I don't know if that was too smart. No, that was genius. That was exactly what it needed. Besides, why did he come? He came for the specific purpose of dying to pay for our sin. Now, we're looking back and we're seeing David. He doesn't deserve this in the sense of the way the narrative is, is playing out. He's God's anointed. He's trying to be faithful, trying to do the right thing. And he's being persecuted. He's being pursued. He's being put in all these difficult and desperate situations. He's, he's even gone to the Philistines, to the very hometown of the giant that he killed, and he has to fake insanity there so that he can survive, but he does survive. He had experiences, and, and I, I, I admire David because he shows us, you know, we can survive even though with God even though we make mistakes and it's amazing how the teachings stick with you I had a very difficult two years when I taught at a school system I mean it was beyond anything I could I could afford <clears throat> finally I took a different job at a different school being an ag teacher and when I left that town for the last time I thought about pulling off the side of the road and shaking off the dust in my shoes as a testimony to and then I got to thinking about David, and, 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 and David says, you know, it's God's job to judge, not me. And I just, in my life, that thought permeates my thinking, as, a, as do the scriptures. And that's why we study so we can become more godlike. But just, just to think that that example that God gave us of what 
David did when he encountered Saul, and he would not take repentance because it belonged to God. He would not harm Saul because. And it's just, you know, whenever we sin in the garden, God knew what was going to happen. But he's like, you, you don't understand. Do not. You're going to open a box of worms. There's going to be people dying. Death's going to enter the world. Then my son's going to have to come and die. We, hadn't, we didn't have a clue what was set in motion. We do now. And then, you know, even angels long to see right. what the plan was going to be to redeem us. And then he, he grafted us in, you know, of that vine of, of life that Jesus and the cornerstone and the, and the body, you know, the Gentiles have got a chance now. But we're still responsible. We still have to do what he says. And all this stuff that goes on and the actions, everything that we learn in God's work modifies how we think and how we act toward other people. And it's kind of like what you said last, I think it was last week, we just have to live a godly life and try to do the best we can, you know. And that's our testimony to God, you know. I mean, just, I don't want to get off the scriptures or anything, but boy, just, you, you're talking about a lesson in life and all the things that David had encountered with Saul. And, 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 and it's, it gives us hope that we can survive too. Sure. And we look at his faith and how his his faith is such a it's it's the guiding light in his life. But what was his faith based on? I, I look at David and what he had to go on, and then I look at myself and what I have to go on. David was about a thousand years before Jesus came. He didn't know anything about the Christ. He didn't know anything about the crucifixion. He didn't know anything about the resurrection. His faith was based on what he knew about God at that point which is much more limited than what we have. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, reasonably sure, he didn't have a, a copy of the Pentateuch uh, that he was carrying around in his hip pocket. Just pull that out and check it. What, what's that? I wonder what that says. Where did the Psalms come from? Well, he's the one that wrote most of them. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you think about what he had available to him and yet the faith that he has so there's something about faith that, well, we read Romans ten seventeen, which tells us faith comes by hearing and that by the word of Christ or the word of God. David had heard something that stuck. I don't know where he learned it or how he learned it, but he, he learned it and it stuck. God had given him, when he anointed him, the Holy Spirit lived in him. Now, I'm sure there's times when he quenched the Holy Spirit, but then he repented. And then he was, and, and, and so that relationship of God's Spirit and his anointed, it directed his mind. He just, that presence was there. Would that be a good observation or a mind? I think that's a good observation, but even prior to that, what did God say when he was rejecting Saul? He said, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And that's how he found David. David was a man after his own heart. He was seeking for, for God. And the Psalms that he wrote while he was shepherding, those were prior to, to all of this uh, deep engagement with, with God and his spirit. Billy, were, did you have a comment? I mentioned the fact that he not only had faith in God, but he trusted him, truly trusted him. And we must trust God with our faith too as we stand firm. Right. My enemy have surrounded me, yet I put my trust in you, O Lord. 
What's the difference between faith and trust? How you live it. Okay. Remember the old story about the guy taking people across Niagara Falls on a wire? Got a wheelbarrow and he'd take stuff and he he said to some guy, you believe I can put you in here and take you? I said, yeah. I said, well, hop in. I said, no. <laughs> he believed he could, he said, but the trust wasn't there. And we do that. I know I do that. Lord, I, I, I believe you said you'll take care of me and won't have anything to worry about. No need to be anxious. As a matter of fact, don't be anxious for anything because I'm going to take care of you. And said, but I, I just feel irresponsible if I'm not worrying about something. How dumb is that? But that's exactly the, the way we tend to think. I'm, I know I'm not the only one that does that. So faith. David had faith. And it didn't keep him out of difficult and dangerous situations. It didn't keep him from circumstances where he felt pressed on, on every side. And that's what we're reading about here. And then we get to chapter 23. And there's this place called Keilah. And the Philistines are fighting against it and plundering it. And so David asks the Lord. This is 23 verse 2. This is his faith again. Faith in action. Not going to just go off and do what he... Oh, I get this idea. Maybe I ought to go down and attack. No, let me ask God first. Let me ask God first. And so he asks God, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And what's the Lord say? Go. You go attack the Philistines and deliver Kedah. So David... He goes to his men, says, we're going to go attack. And, and they say in verse 3, we're afraid. We're afraid in Judah, in our home territory. And you're wanting us to go up to where the Philistines are? So what's David do? Yeah, really. <laughs> and does God berate David for not taking the first answer? No, he reassures his servant. The Lord answered and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. It's like I see myself in David in the sense that, really, I'm, I'm not quite, I need some reassurance here. I need you to tell me again. And God does tell him again. He doesn't say, I already told you once. What's wrong with you, boy? Get down. He, he says, yeah, you go. I'll, I'll deliver it into your hands. It's like this reassurance, and God does that throughout the Bible. He reassures us of his care and his love and his concern. And that's why he says to us, don't worry. He couldn't say that if he wasn't going to take care of the things that we let worry us. He says, don't worry, don't be anxious, because he's taking care of the things that would make us anxious. So David goes... He slaughters the Philistines, delivers them, and we see God's providential care here as well as we see it in so many other places. And then we've got the cave at En Gedi that we've been talking about where David has this opportunity to kill Saul, but he passes it by. And then we get to chapter 25 where he meets Abigail. Abigail provides sustenance for him and his men. In spite of the fact that her husband Nabal says, no, we're not going to do that. Who's David? I'm not going to give my stuff to, to this guy. Well, what happens to Nabal? He eventually dies. Not eventually. Pretty soon he dies. And so David marries 
Abigail. And how many wives, by the way, does he have? He's, he's got a lot. He's, it, they'll, they'll be numbered later. By the time he messes around with Bathsheba, he's already got six wives. Things were different back then. I don't think this is anything that Jesus ever approved of. When he was asked about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, what did he say? He went right back to the beginning, to Genesis, and he said, one man, one woman for life. That's the way that's supposed to work. So what about all this stuff? Has God allowed a bunch of junk through the centuries? He's still doing it. We're not getting things right. He's still patient. He's still waiting. He's still working with us. And this is one of those ways in which we see that. And yet, think about your life if you're Abigail. You're married to this guy Nabal. And in our culture, we think, well, dumb old girl, why'd she marry him? Do you think that was the way it was? Probably not. It doesn't say, there's nothing in the text that tells us how she came to be Nabal's wife, but she is Nabal's wife, and she may have wondered, what in the world is my life going to be like the rest of my living with this guy? And then David shows up, and that's the way it works in life. Just when you think there's no hope and the horizon is all dark, there comes to be a light, and God gives you something you never would have expected would be there, and for her, that was David. And she, she did her best in a godly fashion to help it along by serving David. by taking. Because she could have said, well, if I do something for David, Nabal's going to be mad, so I'm not going to do it. No, she did it. She helped him. And I know, I apologize, we're not reading through all of this. This is quite a bit of material. But all of this is taking place while David is fleeing Saul. This is life happening. And life's happening every day to you and me. What is it somebody said? The days are long, but the years are short or quick. And some of you here know exactly what I'm talking about. It just doesn't take long and you start looking back and, wow, where did all the time go? Uh, This is what happens when you live life. Stuff goes on. So that's as far as I got with that. I don't think I have anything beyond. Nope. So you keep reading and you find out that Saul is eventually going to go solo that he's going to go to the spirit medium to the witch of Endor in chapter 28. 28 verse 1. It came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp and you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. So Samuel was dead by this time. He died back in chapter 26. And all Israel lamented and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had removed him from the land. Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped at Shunem. 
Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. So Saul, it says in verse 5, saw the camp of the Philistines, and he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So what's he do? He inquires of the Lord, but the Lord's not answering. Why would the Lord talk to a man who's left him? You've given up on me. Why would I give you any information? And he tries it through dreams. He tries it by the Urim and by the prophets, the Urim and the Thummim. You remember those? These were stones. There's not much said about them, but we know that they were associated with decision-making. And God was not even answering Saul through these special stones. The prophets couldn't help. So Saul says to his servants, seek for me a woman who's a medium. So how far can you descend? He's going to a witch. That's how bad things have gotten for him. His servant said to him, Behold, there's a woman who's a medium at Endor. And Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes, and he went. Two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And they said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me for whom I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul's done. Oh, he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? And so Saul vowed to her by the Lord. <laughs> He does what? He vows to her by the Lord. God won't talk to him because God won't talk to him because he's given up on the, he won't do anything the Lord wants him to do. And now he's going to a witch and he's swearing to her by God that no harm will come to her. This is, it's all so backward. And we're, we're able to see it because we're looking at it from the outside. Saul's in the middle of it. He, he doesn't even seem to get it. So Saul asked her to bring up Samuel, and that's when the woman somehow realized this is Saul. And she cries out with a loud voice in verse 12, Why have you deceived me for your Saul? Now when I read this, you can read it for yourself and see what you think. 28, especially verses 11 and 12. When she cries out, I wonder if it's because she hasn't actually done this before. <laughs> She's never actually brought anybody back. And all of a sudden, here's Samuel. The text doesn't say that. I want to reiterate that. But she's afraid, and as soon as she sees Samuel, she seems to know that this guy is Saul. And she's afraid. And the king says to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to her, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what's his form? And she said, an old man's coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed for the Philistines are waging war against me and God's departed from me and no longer answers me, either through the prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've called you that you may make known to me what I should do. And Samuel says, well, what are you asking me for? <laughs> if God's given up on you, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary, why are you asking me? It's like, do you not have a brain in your head? 
Can you not see what you've done and what's happening? Now, here's a question. Could Saul have repented at this point and made things right with God? I believe with everything in me that he could have. But he's allowed himself to go so far down the road and he's gotten into the habit of trusting only his own instincts. No faith in God. The only faith he's got is in what he thinks, what he feels, what he believes, what his fears are. Because this is a guy running scared. He's been running scared for a long time. He's been running scared ever since those girls started singing about David. How small-minded, how wrapped up in himself was he? And now he's gotten to this point. Yes? He is trying to go to God now, but he's treating God like a tool in his toolbox. Okay. Not, not a walk with God, not, not obedience to God. He's wanting to use God. You know, oftentimes we'll do it. We'll ignore God until something bad happens, and then we fall on our knees and say, help, help, help. Right. But we've ignored him for the past nine months. Exactly. So, we need you to do something for us now. This is another thing in life, and I... I think there's a relationship here because it's not just God that we do this with sometimes. Sometimes we do it with people. We'll look at somebody and we'll make a judgment about them. Well, they're, they're not very important. There's not much to them. They're, they're small or they're unimportant or they don't have much status. And as soon as we start to look at people like that, uh, it seems to me that God will show us how much we need them in one way or another. Oh, there's somebody. Now I need them. And there can be a sense of shame and embarrassment now. Oh, well, I, I know what I thought before, and now I'm coming to you. Humility is such a, a godly characteristic, and yet who in the universe, beyond the universe, would seem to have no need for humility except God? But when we humble ourselves before the Lord, what does he do? He lifts us up, always. This is what's happening with David. David is humbling himself before the Lord, and God is continually lifting him up because he's eventually going to put him on the throne. But until he gets to the throne, there's all these smaller situations from which he needs to be saved, from which he needs to be guarded, and there's blessings along the way. He gets bread from the priest at Nob. He gets a sword. He gets a beautiful, wise wife out there in the desert, and I'm sure he didn't see that coming. And all of a sudden, but wow, man, I got a pretty good deal out of that situation. All of these things, you see God's care of David bringing him along, and yet none of that's probably what David would have chosen in the sense of, I hope one day I'm out wandering in the wilderness fleeing for my life from the king whom I can't lay my hand on because he's the anointed of God. Probably never thought that, but here he is. Just like he probably never thought, oh, I hope a bear comes out today and I have to fight with him and kill him. Or I hope a lion comes out today and I have to fight with him and kill him. But what good did that do, David? What's that? Confidence. When he went up to face Goliath, that was his confidence. God delivered the bear and the lion into my hand. He'll deliver this guy too. That's what we learn from difficult situations if we're paying attention. That God comes through. He always comes through. Billy? Talks about him killing 
Saul killed 1,000, David killed 10,000. At the time, David had not killed 10,000. The syntax of that song is for a rhyme to make it go flow evenly. You know, he only killed one man here, it was Goliath. He had killed 10,000. But the women come back and said that Saul had killed 10,000 and David 10,000. It's just a rhythmatic of a thought of a song to keep it going. And David was jealous over that. I mean, Saul was jealous. And this whole problem right there, he was jealous for something that really didn't happen. Well, he's jealous of something that, even if it were true, he should be reveling. Look at the soldier that God's given me this guy who can kill 10,000 Philistines. Yeah, I've only killed 1,000, but, but I'm the king, and so I need a guy who can do what David does. But Saul is always focused on himself, and that's where his issue starts. And if you and I, it's the same thing with us. It's one of the things I tell couples in, in premarital counseling. Marriage is split up because of selfishness. There really is no other reason. One way or another, there's selfishness. That's expressing itself in one way or another, and that's what does it. That's what kills a relationship. It kills every relationship that gets killed. It's the same thing. It'll kill our relationship with God. Selfishness will do it. Well, I think it's time for us to quit. So we've made it up to chapter 29. How about that? All right. Right on.